Welcome to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology. Hello and welcome to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, where theology matters. I'm Mike, and I'm Mike. You may notice this is another one of our solo episodes. Right now, I am in Georgia. I have evacuated from Charleston due to Hurricane Dorian. It's Tuesday, and Dorian has been sitting off the Florida coast for about a month now, it seems. Um, So, I have evacuated to Georgia. The other Mike, which is his official name, so the other Mike, TM, uh, evacuated his family to Charlotte, and I thought I would take an opportunity while I was here to uh, address a topic that's probably a little more dear to my heart than it is to the other mics, and that is church history. In particular, I wanted to go through some of the letters from Ignatius um, and just talk through some of the issues, um, give a, a brief overview of who Ignatius was, about what time he was, and some of the interesting facets that we can see and learn from the letters that he left us. Um, Okay, so Ignatius is Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, He was the bishop of, you guessed it, Antioch. And at some point in the early 2nd century, he was taken from there to Rome. Uh, Along the way, he wrote us seven genuine letters. Later on, there were many more letters uh, that are the pseudo-Ignatian epistles. Um, I don't remember how many there are. I think there might be eight false ones and seven genuine ones for 15 total. But nonetheless, um, he comes onto the scene of church history relatively early, after the close of the apostolic era. Um, But we only see him very briefly. In fact, we see him for probably two or three weeks of his life. And then before he even gets to Rome, he vanishes from the scene again. Um, We have every reason to believe that he was, in fact, martyred in Rome, but we don't have confirmation of it. We do have later um, martyrdom stories, but most people would agree that they are not necessarily perfectly accurate, so we can't really rely on them too heavily. So, I said uh, early in the second century... The date that I am kind of convinced of, based on my favorite church history instructors, is somewhere around 107 AD. Uh, I believe that's the more traditional date that's given, and if you trace it back, there was a guy named Lightfoot who um, basically came up with the date based on Eusebius's tradition that Ignatia was, Ignatius was executed near the midpoint of Trajan's reign. Trajan reigned from 98 to 117 AD. Um, We do know those dates very well. We're not sure on the dates of Ignatius. Uh, Some people will say, well, there's no way it was this or that or the other, and they have certain dates that they key off of and certain visits that Trajan made. And um, I don't know that it's all that terribly important. It could be 107 AD, 108 AD. Some people want to put it right at the end of Trajan's reign, so at 117. Uh, In my book, 
that 10-year difference is pretty immaterial as far as telling us what we need to know and learning what we can learn from Ignatius. There are people who try to push him further out into the next emperor's reign, who was Hadrian. Um, even then, I don't know that the date makes that much of a difference. Um, but I, I think most people want to push that date a little bit later, kind of like they do with uh, dating of the New Testament, and that's just because we'll see there are some high concepts, particularly of Christology and Ignatius, that a lot of people seem to have trouble believing was authentic and early. Um, there are some interesting notes about the letters themselves. They actually have three different recensions. They have a short version, a long version, and a middle recension. The ones that I'm reading from are translations from the middle recension. Uh, and the one that I am reading from is the Apostolic Fathers, Greek Texts, and English Translations, the third edition translated by Michael W. Holmes. Um, the first translation or the first version of this series was by J.B. Lightfoot. And then the second edition was by J.R. Harmer. I'm trying to find the dates. Uh, I know this one was published in 2007. The Oh, here we go. The first edition by Lightfoot was 1891. And then I do not see when the second edition was published. But um, this is one that I have found to be very helpful. I think I got it for $7 used off of eBay or Amazon. Um, it's a hardback book. It's in great condition. And if you can't read Greek, it's still a good one to go get because it's got a very nice, modern, readable translation. And though I'm not a Greek scholar, I have compared what sounded like maybe kind of some odd translations with the original. And as far as I can tell, um, it's a, it's a pretty accurate and faithful translation. So I would highly encourage people to get it and read from it. Uh, in addition, just to cover this book a little bit real quick, in addition to the letters of Ignatius, uh, there's First Clement, which is another important early church document. I'll probably do another solo um, episode on that. It has Second Clement, which is one that's of lesser importance. I think now most people would say that wasn't actually from Clement, and so its historic importance seems to have diminished based on that. The letters of Ignatius, uh, the letter of Polycarp to the Philippians, the martyrdom of Polycarp. Man, that's an interesting, interesting read as well. Uh, the Didache, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Epistle to Diognetus, the Fragments of Quadratus, and the Fragments of Papias. Um, so there's definitely some good and interesting content from the probably late 1st and 2nd century, uh, so very early on in the history of the church. Okay, so Ignatius writes these seven letters. Six of them are to churches, and then one of them he writes is to his friend Polycarp. Um, Polycarp, you know, if Ignatius is martyred in 107 and writing to Polycarp at that time, Polycarp is martyred in 155, and he is martyred, I believe he's 86 at the time, which means that he was 31 at the year 100, which means that he was born in 69, 
So would have been kind of a middle-aged man receiving letters from Ignatius if the rest of the dates kind of all line up. But it's very interesting to see a lot of what's going on and what's in play in the church at this early date. Um, and so Ignatius, like I said, is being carried from Antioch in Syria to Rome. Along the way, he meets with some churches. Uh, they decide at one point to take a northern route instead of a southern route, so messengers are dispatched to the churches who he's going to miss, and they come to meet him. And it's it's just an interesting mix of they're taking this guy off to be murdered by the state because he's a Christian, and yet there are other known Christians who are coming and going and meeting with him as a prisoner, and apparently that's not a problem. So um, just one kind of side note real quick is just that the the application of persecution by the Roman government early on was very sporadic, uh, very uneven. Um, it's a little bit later than this that you have Pliny the Younger uh, interacting with, I, I can't remember, I think it was, I can't remember if it was Trajan or Hadrian, but he writes a letter to one of those two emperors basically saying, hey, what do I do with these Christian people? And the the answer that's given is, eh, don't go out of your way to get them, but if they're accused and they won't recant, then, you know, take care of them. And so um, it's just, it's, you know, a lot of times I think people who aren't very well versed in church history will think that there was this solid empire worldwide persecution against the church that was just unremitting. And um, while that did occur, it certainly occurred, and, and there were quite a lot of martyrs in the early days, uh, there were also portions of the empire where the church was left in relative peace and stability. And um, there's really not, as far as I can tell, there's not really a reason why. You can't point at one group and say, they were righteous, so they got to live in peace, or they were righteous, so they were martyred. Um, there, there seems like there's probably some of that and other things mixed in as well. And it's been very illuminating to me to look back into church history and see that uh, the, the picture is not always painted with crisp black and white lines, but there are shades of gray, and it's, uh, it's very interesting because the early church dealt with this issue of martyrdom, and they thought through what do you do? Do you flee or do you volunteer? Or how do how do we handle this? And uh, given what I think the American church is facing, I think that it would be very beneficial for more Christians to know where we come from and how the church of old has already thought through these types of issues. Okay, so let's get into the letters themselves. Um, one of the first things that I notice when I'm reading through uh, these letters is unity within the local body is absolutely paramount in Ignatius's mind. Um, if you go into, and these are the letters in the order that I have them in this book, but his letter to the Ephesians, um, section 3 or chapter 3, depending on how you want to call it, uh, it's titled Obedience to the Bishop. And then if you move on and go to his letter to the Magnesians, section 2, Obedience to the Bishop. Um, if you go to his letter to the Trollians, section 2, Obedience to the Bishop. To the Romans, interestingly enough, 
nothing there about a bishop. So we will uh, we'll definitely come back to that point in a minute. But you go to the Philadelphians, section 1, praise for the bishop. Sections 2 through 4, warnings about divisions. Um, then the Smyrnians, you have warnings about error, bad teachers and bad beliefs, obedience to the bishop. I mean, it's just... And then you get into the letter to Polycarp, and he's got general instructions for a bishop. So what does this tell us? Well, there's several key facts that I think that are in play here. One is um, because the church could... The, the threat of persecution was always imminent. Even if it wasn't present in the given community, it was always imminent, i.e., it could always come tomorrow, today. You wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily know. And yes, there were portions that lived in peace for decades and decades, but at the drop of a hat, that could change for any church community pretty much anywhere in the empire. Um, and, and because of that, unity was immensely important. And you see Ignatius really hammers that home repeatedly. I mean, just over and over and over. Um, you know, he talks about the bishops being appointed throughout the world who are the mind of Christ. Um, Thus it is proper for you to run together in harmony with the mind of the bishop, as you are in fact doing. For your council of presbyters, which is worthy of its name and worthy of God, is attuned to the bishop as strings to a lyre. Therefore, in your unanimity and harmonious love, Jesus Christ is sung." You know, then you go over to, that was to the Ephesians, this is to the Magnesians. Um, uh, it is right, therefore, that we not just be called Christians, but that we actually be Christians, unlike some who call a man bishop, but do everything without regard for him. Such people do not appear to me to act in good conscience, inasmuch as they do not validly meet together in accordance with the commandment. I mean, there he's saying, if you disregard your bishop, you're not even having a church service. If if you've disobeyed him, if you are not in communion with your bishop, then you're basically in rebellion against God, and so your worship service is invalid. Um, and I think that there's some value to that. Now, later on, I think Rome takes a good principle, and, and we'll talk in a minute how I, even this, I don't think, is a purely good principle, but Rome takes a good principle of being in communion with the leaders of your church, and then they magnify it in the single person of the Bishop of Rome and pervert it to a place where it what was once good and right and beautiful becomes ugly and eventually, I would argue, heretical. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you, you go on to the letter to the Trollians, for when you are subject to the bishop as to Jesus Christ, it is evident to me that you are living not in accordance with human standards, but in accordance with Jesus Christ. Uh, it's just, it's amazing. Um, the, the implications here are, are kind of wide-reaching and a little bit astounding, but if you think about it, John probably is dying off in the 80s or 90s, so the apostles are leaving the scene. I mean, some of them obviously started a few decades before John. He's, as far as we know, the last one to perish, but they're still not that long ago and yet already, apparently more so in the Eastern Church and then coming to the West, 
you've gone from the biblical model of ecclesiology with a plurality of elders within a local congregation to this idea of a three-tiered hierarchy. You have a single bishop, then you have the council of presbyters, and then underneath them you have the deacons. Um, So it's interesting to me that that arises so rapidly, and yet apparently, I would say, so contrary to Scripture. And how do we deal with that? How do we think through that type of a development? I think some people go, well, look at how rapidly it happened. It must have had the approval of the apostles, or it must have had the approval of God, or they, they somehow seek to, to normalize it or, or bless it as, in, as, as if it's in some way a good um, development. But I would say, gosh, it's just amazing to me how quickly um, my argument would be that worldly concerns kind of pressed in, that they looked around and every other part of society that they saw had a hierarchy. And if you think about it from a pure kind of efficiency or pragmatic viewpoint, the single leader model works a whole lot better. Um, one of my favorite church history professors is Michael Haken. He is a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, I took his class online at Reformed Baptist Seminary, rbseminary.org. And, um, you know, he, he kind of jokes around and says that military dictatorships are really efficient. You have one guy who tells everybody else what to do, and that's that. Uh, committees are inherently inefficient. And so it, it does make sense to me that human beings being what we are, um, seemingly always thinking that we can improve on what God has told us to do, they look around, they see that everybody else is doing this, and you know what? In most places, it works pretty well. So why don't we do that too? And next thing you know, as far as we can tell, the single bishop model creeps in rather rapidly. Now, another point that's very interesting with that is, like I said, developed in the East and moved over to the West. There are six letters that are written. You've got the Ephesians, the Smyrnians, the Magnesians, the Trollians, uh, the Philadelphians, and the Romans. And of those six, there's only one church where no mention of a bishop is made, and that is the church in Rome. Um, We'll deal with this in another episode, but that actually comports with everything that we know historically. Um, You go back to 1 Clement, when the church in Rome is writing to the church in Corinth, and there's no whiff of a single bishop there. Uh, And so too now, uh, a dozen or so years later, we see there's no mention of a bishop. He's, Ignatius is incredibly pointed to talk about the bishop of the Smyrnians, the bishop of the Philadelphians, the bishop of the Trollians. He writes to his friend Polycarp and talks to him about what it means to be a good bishop. And yet when he writes to Rome, no mention whatsoever is made. Um, and from all that we can tell, there actually was no single bishop ruling the church in Rome until about 140 AD. That tells me that the Roman claims of papal primacy are bunk from the very get-go. There's no way historically to substantiate anything like that the church understood Peter to be installed as the bishop of Rome from 30 AD. I mean, that's what the Roman Catholic Church claims, is that Peter was the bishop of Rome in 30 AD. Um, you know, 1,500 miles away from where he was born, a place that he didn't get to until probably at least the 50s, if not the 60s. But somehow he was widely known, and the entire church believed that he was the 
vicar of Christ on earth, the singular head of the church and the bishop of the city of Rome. Um, completely baseless and foundless claims. So uh, we've got the issue of the rise of the single bishop model, how it hadn't reached Rome, um, how in the single bishop, Ignatius sees really kind of a distillation of what it means to be in union with God, which reminds me of First John. Uh, it's a book that I just taught through with two other guys at our Wednesday night church services, and golly, John just hammers home and hammers home and hammers home the issue of unity, the issue of fellowship, fellowship with one another, fellowship with the Father, love for one another. And it's not that surprising to me that, according to tradition, Ignatius was a disciple of John, because I see a lot of the same themes that are kind of being recycled by him. And I don't say that in a bad way. He's he's bringing up good stuff, and we need to be reminded of the good stuff repeatedly. And I see him doing that. Um, let's see, what else? Well, it's very interesting. There are some high, high statements of Christology in the letters of Ignatius. A popular, uh, I don't know if it's a meme or a belief, or I, I don't know what you want to call it, but there's a popular belief today that the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD made up the idea of the Trinity or the deity of Christ, right? Historically, it was the council that came up with the creed that put into creedal form a Trinitarian formula, but it was simply putting into a creedal form ideas that had been around, well, since the New Testament, but that even had been expressed throughout the history of the church. Let me give you an example. Again, I would argue that this is taking place in 107 AD, maybe 10 years later, still 200 years before the Council of Nicaea, and here's how he opens his letter to the Ephesians. Well, I'll skip the, the introduction and go to section 1. I welcomed in God your well-beloved name, which you possess by reason of your righteous nature, characterized by faith in and love of Christ Jesus our Savior. Here's the important part. Being imitators of God, once you took on new life through the blood of God, you completed perfectly the task so natural to you. Um, with really not even drawing attention to it or, or trying to make the statement stand out, he very clearly talks about Christ and, and that his shed blood was the blood of God. Now, there are some interesting discussions to be had about that and whether God can actually bleed or not, but nonetheless, it's a very clear assertion that Ignatius believes in the full divinity of Christ. And there is actually a lot of that throughout his letters. Um, Unfortunately, I didn't take good enough. Ah, here we, here's another one to the Romans. Ignatius, the image bearer to the church that has found mercy in the majesty of the Father Most High and Jesus Christ, his only Son, the church beloved and enlightened through the will of the one who willed all things that exist in accordance with faith in and love for Jesus Christ, our God. I'm not sure how it actually gets any clearer than that. And then I believe there is 
one more. Well, while I'm looking for that, here's some other statements that he makes about unity with the bishop. Um, no, the Spirit itself was preaching through him, saying these words, Do nothing without the bishop. Guard your bodies as the temple of God. Love unity. Flee from divisions. Become imitators of Jesus Christ, just as he is of the Father. And in fact, here's another one. Here's Ignatius to the Ephesians. Let no one be misled. If anyone is not within the sanctuary, he lacks the bread of God. For if the prayer of one or two has such power, i.e. of excommunication, how much more that of the bishop together with the whole church? Therefore, whoever does not meet with the congregation thereby demonstrates his arrogance and has separated himself. For it is written, God opposes the arrogant. Let us, therefore, be careful not to oppose the bishop in order that we may be obedient to God. Now, I said earlier, I see a lot of positive value in this, though it's not purely positive. Um, in that, I would say, this the, the letters of Ignatius have really challenged me in the past few years as I've become more acquainted with them and think back to 1 John and how much he hammers on unity and fellowship, or think back to Paul in 1 Corinthians. I mean, get this, right? Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and it is just a mess of a church. I mean, a mess of a church. You've got all kinds of stuff going on. You've got people getting drunk at communion. You've got a dude sleeping with his mother-in-law. Uh, people are dragging each other to court for lawsuits. I mean, all kinds of messiness and nastiness. And it's just, it's not a good situation. And in spite of all of that, the very first thing that Paul addresses with them is, one, he says, you guys are fellow believers, which is interesting. I think a lot of people would look at a church like Corinth that's doing what Corinth was doing, and assume that it's a false church. But Paul addresses them as brothers, and then immediately goes into dealing with their disunity and calling them upward to unity in the faith. So you've got Paul doing that, you've got John doing that, and then here comes Ignatius, one of the first generations after the apostles, and that's the very same concern that he's got. Now, I don't agree with his ecclesiology, I don't have to agree with everything that he wrote, or I don't have to agree with every development in the early church to be able to look at him and say, he's, he's on to something here. This is something that's very important for us. And it's been a challenge to me. It, um, I used to be a little more kind of, of a renegade and felt like formal church membership wasn't that big of a deal. And you know, we kind of can all do what we want, and, and I've really been challenged. God has used not only Scripture, but also some of the writings of the early church to impress on me just how important it is that we have unity and fellowship in our local body. Uh, and obviously, the Scripture bears much, much more weight, but when I see Ignatius come along and echo those scriptural principles— and talk about how if you separate yourself from the church, and he sees the church kind of in the person of the bishop, and I think there's good and bad there, but but if you separated yourself from the church, you know, you, you're at least in danger. And a lot of the early church fathers would say, 
if you if you walk out and try to do it on your own apart from the actual church, there's no salvation out there. There's just no salvation out there. I think it was Cyprian who said, um, if you don't have the church for your mother, you can't have God for your father. I may I may be wrong on who said that, but you know they had this idea that is a little bit foreign to us as Western Christians, but it's this idea that, yes, salvation is absolutely an individual thing in that you're not brought into the faith because your parents are or your grandparents are. You're not in it because you're part of a group who happens to worship together. I mean, you have to individually be grafted into the vine, um, and you have to have the Christ in you. You have to be in Christ. It, it is a very individual salvation from that standpoint. But there's also, I think, something that we in the modern West really miss is that there's this corporate atmosphere. There is this body nature, and the Bible speaks of it. So I don't know why we miss it so badly, but I think it's like our Western individualism. It makes us think as if Christianity is just kind of this thing that we can do on our own. And yeah, we're probably supposed to go to church, but a lot of times we seem to miss the absolute um, requirement of having the body in our lives and and being a vibrant part of a body so that we can serve others. Um, you, you know, we're, we're not going to make it on our own. You're a foot or you're a hand or you're an eye. And while... It's true that you can't go out and do it on your own by yourself. It's also true that the body is going to be diminished if you remove yourself from it. And so, you know, from the New Testament or from these writings of the letters of Ignatius, the early church just seemed to really understand how vitally important it was to have true fellowship, to, to meet together, to be united to understand the gospel, to rally around that, and to love one another. And that's been something that's just been hugely beneficial to me in reading these letters of Ignatius, as well as much else, but um, just seeing how he repeatedly comes back to this idea that, you know, the body needs to be united to the bishop, the Bishop needs to be united with the Council of Presbyters. They need to be united with the deacons. Everybody needs to love one another. You need to shun division. You need to shun heresy. You need to warn people who are walking away from the fellowship and call them back into unity and fellowship with the true body. And it's it's really just a rich and beautiful picture. Um, and, and quite honestly, for... You know, my wife and I have been married for 16 years now, and for most of our married life, we were searching for that kind of a church, and we're very fortunate that we found a church. It's not a perfect church, but it's a good one, where true fellowship is known, where the body loves one another, where we are integrated in one another's lives, not in a weird communist, everything is everybody's and all, I mean you know we're we're still good americans and have our own property and all of that but but we love one another we are our brothers keepers and we are united with our elders our elders are united with the body our members are united with one another we love one another we serve one another we help one another and reading the letters of ignatius is one of the ways in the past few years that those concepts have really come alive in my life 
and have really expanded and borne fruit. So I would highly recommend that you go read these. Uh, honestly, it's not that much material. It is, um, let me see, this is a, a relatively small book. It goes from page 183 to, okay, so it's about 80 pages, but half of them are Greek, so it's really about 40 pages, but it's small, small pages. So honestly, um, it's maybe about the size of six Philippians or Ephesians or something like that, you know, maybe take you an hour and a half, two hours to read front to back in one sitting. But I think there's a lot of gold in there that can be mined out, particularly when we compare it back to scripture, see where it does well and see where it doesn't, um, chew the meat, spit out the bones, find the gold that's in there and really cling to it and, and see that even though there's some slippage from the truth almost immediately in the early church, God was still building his church, and God was still calling his church through the leaders that he had installed in his church uh, for them to love one another and be in fellowship and do all things in unity. Because if you remember, that's what Christ said. They will know you by your love for one another. All right, so... Uh, that was me kind of nerding out a little bit on church history. I plan to do a few more of these, definitely one on First Clement, probably something on the Didache and the letter to Diognetus. If you enjoy this, uh, I think everyone says smash that like button or whatever, but, um, you know, let us, let us know what you like. We're trying to create a podcast that is fun, that's enjoyable, that's informative, and that helps you out in your Christian walk. So, um... You know, it's posted on YouTube. Leave us some comments there. If you want to come find us, we've got the Facebook group, Theology Matters. Um, Mike and I are, the other Mike and I are moderators there, and you guys can get in touch with us and uh, just let us know what you think. Let us know what we're doing well, what we're not doing well, and give us some ideas for topics you'd like to hear us cover in future podcasts. All right, I don't have the tagline in front of me, but I'm going to try and do it from memory. I think it's something like, think well do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. Bye. You've been listening to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology.